Welcome to the Golf Week Raider podcast. This is Thomas Dunn. This podcast was recorded in March of 2020 at Casa de Campo in the Dominican Republic. Our guest in this episode is Gilles Gagnon, the resort's chief marketing officer and director of Golf Emeritus. Jill tells the story of how a hockey-playing Canadian wound up working for a lifetime in the Caribbean, but that's only for starters. Jill is institutional knowledge personified. In the early 1970s, he was witness to the creation of Teeth of the Dog, which is on the short list of Pete Dye's best designs. And much later, he witnessed the return to build a second course, Dye 4. I had a lot of fun with Jill, so I hope you enjoy this conversation. Jill, thank, thank you for joining us. My pleasure to be here. Uh, so let's start at the beginning. I mean, you, uh, you know, how does a French-Canadian hockey player wind up in the Dominican Republic? Well, if you hit, uh, get hit with enough puck and you're staying in Montreal when it's freezing to death, you come down and they offer you a, a position in the Dominican Republic. But I came, um, I was at Michigan State, I played hockey there, and then from there I was uh, hired by, uh, uh, at Colgate University as the assistant hockey coach, and a golf professional uh, retired. So they said, uh, I went to them and I go, well, I don't have anything to do this, you know, this summer. Why don't I do that? And make a long story longer, I started uh, there and uh, the golf coach at uh, Michigan State was Bruce Fossum, who was the chairman of the NCAA at the time. So I called him up and I said that I was, you know, I'm going to be a golf pro. And he says, oh, God bless all. You know, he says, this, there's no way. And um, so I invited him and he saw this golf course that uh, Seven Oaks Golf Club, that was uh, the first course designed by Robert Trenchone, actually. And uh, was, didn't build it out of Cornell, but they designed it. And uh, so anyway, so he brought the NCAA there. And from there, you know, I, somebody told me about the position down here originally. I applied and uh, uh, actually the, the position was given to Bill Coors, who was the Coors and Crenshaw. And uh, he came down here and he goes, you know, I don't want to be a, a golf professional or a director. I want to design. But Pete Dye wanted to make sure that his golf course were protected and that somebody would take care of it. So what year was this? That was 1980. Mm-hmm. Yeah, October 1980. So anyway, so Bill decided not to take it. Then they decide that uh, they call me up and they say, would you be interested? And I said... Well, we got an interview, and I go, well, no, 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 excuse me. I'm not going down to the Dominican Republic. I'm in upstate New York. It's about 28 degrees. It's snowing in October. I said, you know, you're going to tell me I don't have the position. I might, you know, I might not, you know, try to cut my cut some my wrists there. So anyway, they said no, and then a week later, and I thought, oh, you're nuts, so, you know, crazy. And they called me a week later, and they said, uh, you got the position. Come on down. So my wife was pregnant. We sold house, cars, furniture packed our bag and um, had about $8,000 in the bank and came down and took a shot and here I am 40 years later. It's amazing to think how golf history would be different if Bill Coor had taken the job at Casa de Campo. It wouldn't be as good as me being here. (laughs) (laughs) That's probably true. Well, probably that, you know, he might have helped design the other golf course, but, uh, you know, one thing we did is... uh, I wanted to keep my position and there was not much golf here so we ended up the way for me that I felt that I could stay here was to create uh, some events and uh, do you know bring people down here so that's what we did so I you know I started a tournament in September which the Casa de Campo open now it's going to be 39 years this year and uh, 
we brought, you know, we started a few people, 40 people, 50 people, uh, one pro-am that was here, you know, originally, and we went three or four, and um, so when it was time for me to kind of decide, you know, to retire, you know, they thought, geez, you know, maybe some of these people won't come because, he's, you know, he's not here, and obviously I wrote all emails and say, I need a raise and I need a new job, so please make sure you tell them if I'm not here, you're not going to come, and so anyway, so we changed, and I work for wonderful people, and uh, so now I retired from running the golf operation and uh, started, uh, you know, the sales and marketing and putting these events together, and uh, and it's been a wonderful life. What was your marketing strategy in the early years? Was it did you have find it challenging to attract visitors to the Dominican Republic in the early 1980s? Well, you know, the the drive from Santo Domingo to here, you know, was two hours on a terrible road and you could hit three donkeys and, uh, you know, cars, you know, motorcycle with no lights. And so it was a little challenging, but, you know, it's like, it's very similar to people going to Bandon Dunes or, you know, Sand Hills. I mean, obviously that's not the same type of drive, but still, you, you know, is you build it and they'll come actually. So what I did is, and I started inviting the, the, the golf pro that had been there in a pro-am, I started inviting them back and, you know, say, listen, if you bring a, uh, you know, some people, you know, we'll, we'll help you. And, uh, and uh, basically, uh, if, you take to, uh, if you talk to Rick Summers, who's uh, the PG ambassador, he, you know, he's very nice to me all the time. And he said, you know, we stole the idea. And uh, the idea was to bring the golf professional down here and they obviously... Now it's very popular. The golf professional takes people all over, you know, sure. all over the world. But at the time, it was something like you come over here and they go back. Where have you been? Well, I've been to Casa de Campo. It's amazing. And then, you know, obviously, then that's how we built the business. So you knew Pete Dye very well. You were very good friends. Um, do you have any any stories uh, that he would have related to you about the construction of? of Teeth of the Dog? Um, how much time do we have? Uh, but I didn't know, you know, I did not know Pete Dye. Um, I, I didn't know, he called me when I got the position up in upstate New York and they called two or three times, they finally got a hold of me and he said, look, yeah, congratulations, he said, uh, you're gonna need help down there and he says, I'm there, he says, you know, don't hesitate to, to reach out to me and I said, oh yes sir, and he goes, I'm telling you, you're gonna need help down there. And I did and, uh, well, you know, I were, I walked, I can't tell you how many uh, how many miles with him. It's very emotional because he was a, a you know we became very very close. He was the yes. mentor, the father I've never had. Uh, my, he was my basically one of my best friend. Not because he was a golf course architect, is because he was a wonderful man. Yeah. And we'd walk up there uh, when we built you know what he was doing. Die for well, first Latomana Country Club, but Latomana was a little easier to see, but. I would walk with him and we'd walk, you know, all over the place and you'd, you had the, the topo map, you know, and he would kind of, he would route it, but then we'd walk, you know, and stuff and he'd see, oh, this there and this, you know, we're going to do this and that. And I really couldn't see anything. Honest to God, I couldn't see anything. So one day we get to, we're walking out and he says to me, uh, well, what do you think? I said, Pete, I'm going to tell you, I don't even know what the heck you're doing. I can't see anything. <laughs> and he says, most people that walk with me tell me they see, but nobody's honest. He says, you told me, and I know you couldn't see anything. And I said, that's exactly right. But then when you clear things, and then they, st you know, we start putting some stakes, and, uh, you know, after it's designed, it's there. I got some wonderful idea where a bunker should go. But, uh, you know, but that, that was one of the things. And he also listened. 
You know, Pete Dye wasn't afraid to tell you, uh, you know, that you could tell him something. Like number eight on the teeth of the dog, for example, the the tea that's on the ocean there, you know, it kept getting blown out and blown out. And so I, I would go in there and rebuild it, you know, and I would put rocks and basically like a wall, you know, and the thing would get blown out all the time. So finally he said to me one day, he goes, you know, how long is it gonna take you to realize that if you put a wall straight up, the force of the water will break it. You need to put so more it's an angle, so when the waves come in, they'll roll over versus just banging against something. And um, 15 on the teeth, there used to be uh, uh, sea grapes back there. And I said to him one day, I go, Pete, I said, I said, I don't know if I want to see sea grapes, you know, why can't we see the ocean, you know? And he says, didn't say anything, walked out. The next day I walk out there, all the sea grapes are gone and, you know, you could see. So you could tell Pete and sometime he'd tell me I'd been hit with too many hockey pucks. That didn't make any sense, but he'd still, uh, you know, he, he would listen. He, he, that's, I think that's how he became so great. He had so many, if you think of all the architects that worked for him, I mean, you know, pretty much everybody from Nicholas to Doak to, uh, you know, Coors and all these people worked for him, but he was never afraid to let them come up with ideas and then he would do it and then it became his ideas, obviously, some of it. He'd say that, he'd say, well, I didn't think of that, somebody else did, but now they think it's me. But that's how he was. He was just just brilliant, brilliant person. How long did it take uh, to construct Casa de Campo, the Teeth of the Duck? You know, that's a, I, I think it was a couple years because, you know, they never used, uh, you know, I wasn't here then, but obviously I talked to Pete a lot, but they, they didn't have any, uh, you know, bulldozers and stuff like that. Basically, it was rakes and uh, you had all these Dominicans Labor. that were out there. Laborer, basically, you know, yeah. oxen. And it was all coral there. So um, they brought all this, uh, this material they put on there. It's called cachaça. Basically, it's a mixture of... Uh, manure and uh, sand, you know, the, the, the uh, byproduct of sugar and then soil and they mix it all up and uh, that's how they, with sand and everything, and that's how they put that on there and uh, if you dig too deep on Teeth of the Dog, you're going to find out it's not very, you know, you're not that far from hitting the coral, you know, about three or four inches basically. It's interesting, you kind of anticipated a, a question that I had in my notebook for much later on in this, in this interview. And it's one of the, you really pinpointed something that I was trying to find today. You know, I, I knew I was playing a great golf course and I was trying to locate the reason why. And I think that one of the reasons why is that it, it does feel more handmade than a, certainly a lot of modern golf courses, including plenty of Pete's courses later in his career. Like uh, it has a rough hewn, um, handmade quality to it. It just it has that 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 feeling of it hasn't been it wasn't built by enormous D8 bulldozers. Yeah, and you know it's funny because I've played the TPC, I played a lot of the, his golf courses, and uh, you know I, I'm not happy that he's gone, but he probably would strangle me. But I, I would I I used to think in my mind that Pete was the best person, the best architect to take a horrible piece of land and make it a wonderful golf course out of it, you know? Uh, I'm not so sure if I would want him, like for example, uh, in Sand Hills or something, you know, they didn't touch anything there. Um, Pete loved to, you know, but this he didn't, you know, he didn't have a whole lot of choice, obviously, because it was there, they were like these holes on the, you know, he he, he saw these holes on the the water he could do and then the rest of them, but I think if you look at uh, old pictures, which 
I, you know, I gave you a, a little some books and stuff about it. That's there were no trees out there. You know, it was really there were no trees, and uh, he planted trees, and then the you know birds and things kind of did the rest of it. But um, he, he really, you know, he did things, but in a certain way that he couldn't, you know, he couldn't move anything because it was on coral. So it's not like you're going to move coral. And um, you know, like number two, for example, on the teeth of the dog. Uh, on the left side there, you see these rocks, right, that are there. Well, how this came about was that he was marking the fairway and there was a lot of rocks on the right side and everything. So he put the rocks along there where he wanted that bunker. Well, these workers didn't know any better, so they all threw the rocks there. Then he came out and he go, wow, that's a pretty good idea, right? So, so that's what happened. So he put some railroad ties there, which now are different. It's not railroad ties anymore, but they're, you know, whatever, stumps. And um, he put that, and then we stay there, and we put some sand on the left. So, um, yeah. So he, he 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 didn't really he didn't move any dirt, basically. You know, he just took the land and he just put some grass on it, and then you know added this this genius from the greens and the tees and stuff like that. And it's changed a lot, by the way. You know, if you see the golf course, um, you know, when I first got here, and uh, it's 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 changed quite a bit you know 18 is way different uh you know it's a lot softer than it used to be i mean number three to par five there if the pin was in front if you didn't go straight at it you could spend a month there you know I mean, <laughs> and art wall for example i played with him and he hit it about four times you know back and forth finally he said the hell with this you know and put it all in the pocket and moved on so um it, it and number eight the, the bunker in front there used to be much bigger, but then as Pete got older, he couldn't fly it on and keep it on. So he put that grass area there and, you know, I didn't appreciate much, but as I'm getting older now, it's kind of like, because you aim there, hit it about a club shorter, bounce it on and it rolls on the green. Right. Now, are you describing uh, some of the changes that occurred when Pete and Alice came back to essentially restore their own golf course? When did they, they came back here about five or seven years ago, didn't they? To, to well, they were here all the time, you know, you had a home here, and sure. he was here all the time. So he would, every time he was here, he'd walk around and he would write some notes, or I, if I wasn't with him, he'd write notes and things, and he'd give it to me, and he was worse than a doctor. I mean, he had the worst handwriting I've ever seen. <laughs> Nobody could understand it, so I would kind of, you know, I had to feel what he did, but he gradually kind of thing, and then, like you said, and, I, you know, I can't remember now how many years ago, but that's when we made some changes where we went to past Palum Greens and then we, uh, not, you know, every hole kind of touched it. You know, one was much different, well, not different, but the, 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 there were bunkers in the back and it was deeper and number two got a little wider. Number three obviously changed. Number four was totally different. Uh, the green was more to the left, it was much shorter hole. And, um, you know, when they sold some land there, the, the people that bought land wanted to see the ocean a little better, so he leveled it off. Five originally was a 200 yard, and the green was on the where the uh, the the t you know the uh, temporary green is. That's where it was. Um, number seven, the par three was way different in terms of the sand and all. Eight was a fairway that was split. There was a lower fairway and an upper fairway, and you had railroad ties in the middle. So um, you know every hole ten is different. Uh, you know the green used to be narrower. Eleven is different. Twelve went the other way because we had the runway that came through there. Uh, 13 was pretty much the same. 14, 15, 15, 16, 17, he added some bunkers, you know, but 18 also went total opposite way. Now it goes, basically you go right to left. It used to go, you had the bunker on the right, you had to the left, and then you had to go over the water and they were 
you know, all the egrets that used to be a big tree there, they all sat there at night type of thing. So, Do you know why uh, it changes? So a lot, a lot of changes, you know, and it's a lot of time when people change things, it's not for the better. And, you know, I, I don't know if it was if it was better or not. It just, I think, as the people change their mentality about playing golf, you know, they don't want to suffer anymore. You know, young generation, they don't want to just get beat up. Yeah, I love to get beat up out there. <laughs> So what happened is they softened things up. When he built the TP, you know, the one in uh, California, uh, for, um, and I'm trying to think the one that they had the the, uh, the they had a tour event there or the Skins game with Trevino at the time. He built as he said to PGA me, as, West. PGA West. He built as hard as he could because people would pay and play back and just get beat up. Today they don't want to do that. You know, people, kids want music. They want a couple of drinks. They want to have fun. They don't want to go out there and shoot 110. You know, they just want to have fun. So we softened it up a little bit. But it's still not easy. You know, teeth of the dog, you could be the best to the worst. And I can tell you, like the Tour Latin America, PGA Tour Latin America or the Latin American Amateur Championship, these kids don't kill it. And they play a lot of time when we start, they play tees that are much easier. You know, as you know, they change the tees, obviously. But... They just don't, this thing is, doesn't get beat up. You know, you don't have to have uh, anything spectacular. You know, you miss the green, it's tough. And, uh, you know, the guy could make a tough hole look easy and an easy hole look tough. That was Pete. Tell me more about the, the airport runway that we see on 18. When was that removed? Again, you know, I mean, you, you, when you live here at Casa de Campo, you know, time just as the weather's the same pretty much, uh, except today, but, or yesterday, but the weather's the same. So it kind of, the months kind of rolled into years, years. So, but uh, we removed the, the runway and originally you would go across number 12, you would hit across the runway and in 18, and there used to be a small fence there and there was a, there was a tower. And uh, when a plan was on the way, they would ring the bell and the gate would close so you can go across. Well, I don't know if the guy fell asleep after the plane landed, but that bell would be ringing and ringing, and there was no, you know, cell phone then, and it'd be like four foursome there waiting to get across, and the caddy would be coming back running or something. Mr. Gang, and you know the the run, we can't get across. So then we'd call the tower and they'd open the thing. But it was pretty interesting when you had the seven uh, seven twenty seven land here, you know, and uh, Crenshaw played in the pro am, and. Uh, my daughter was 16, so it's probably about 22 years ago, 23 years ago, and he took that flight. And I still remember sitting at the Lago Grill and see that thing, and it was hot, and I could hear this thing just rev up. And it finally came in, and it, the wheels came off right in front of Lago Grill, must have been about 50 feet left. And he cleared the second tee by about 100 feet. <laughs> and, I, and I remember Crenshaw calling, he goes, I'll never come back there if I have to fly that again. I, we thought we were, you know, we were done. But uh, it was pretty interesting. It was, actually, people loved the idea. You know, when there was only one flight a day, but it was a lot of private jets and stuff like that. So it, it was very interesting. As I think a couple of the Raiders observed, I mean, we all know Teeth of the Dog is famous for its oceanfront holes. Um, that's that's what draws people here. Uh, but I think you know, we I was hearing remarks today uh, about just how high quality the the holes on the interior are as well. Um, there's no there's no let up in terms of quality um, when you leave the coast. And I was just curious if you had a, a favorite inland hole at Teeth of the Dog that, that uh, you think is special. Well, I think we probably have the best 
par threes, four par threes, or if you think of five, seven, 13, and 16. And obviously five, seven, and 16 are in the ocean. But I think the 13th hole is probably the hardest par three we have. It was ranked number two during the Latin American Amateur Championship. And it's one of those things that if you miss it a little right, it goes right, you miss left, left. So when you're trying to come back on the green from right or left side, it's really difficult because it runs away. So, um, you know, the par threes here, you play a lot of golf courses and they have one good par three, two, I think all four of them. But that hole to me is like, you get there and you're thinking, okay, you could have parred, you know, five, seven, and you know, you're thinking it's 16, but that hole is, is one of the, I think it's one of the best par three that is not on the water. It just sits right in front of you and, but it challenged you to hit it. Sure. You know, so that's probably, I would say, uh, my favorite hole. Now, you know, I could, other hole that is pretty good, but that's, that's pretty spectacular. Uh, yeah, right? that one sticks out in your mind. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, Teeth of the Dog and then Die 4 was created within your time yeah. at the resort. 2003, Die yeah. 4. What was, uh, what was that experience like to, to be a part of the development of that golf course? Um, and I, again, I'm, in, I'm especially interested in uh, the construction methods used there because it, it, it is a dramatically different piece of property from Teeth. Uh, it's bold and severe in places, and the way that you get around that golf course is, you know, hopping from ridge to ridge is it's really interesting. So I'd love to hear more about that. Well, first of all, um, the back nine, let's say, uh, which the Chavon side, number 10, you know, when you look there, that was, this is settled quite a bit. This was just a... You know, it went all the way down to the river. So we filled that up for, I don't know, almost a year. He kept putting rocks in there and stuff like that. So when you play 18, which is parallel to number 10, you see that thing that's way down. Well, that settled probably about 20 feet over the years. Wow. And so there was, uh, so that was from the, the back tee there to where the forward tees are. That was all the way down basically to the river. So that was filled up quite a bit. So it was really... A, not a very good, like I said, I walked in there and it was like, you know, rocky and not very good. So, um, but he, you know, he wanted to go on the side of, of, of the river and he wanted to make sure that we had as many holes as possible. But we filled up a lot of area there when he filled up and they, um, what they did is when they built the marina here, they were taking rocks from up there and dynamiting different area. The Dive 4, the original Dive 4, and then the, the one that's the Lagos, which is the lake. The, the lake you see out there, those were because they were taking rocks out of it, and there were holes, and Pete decided those are going to be lakes, and we worked around it. But um, for 17, for example, this thing, the greenness sits way up, you know, and he, they were thinking about kind of cutting it down and everything, and finally he said, you know, I've had enough. I'm tired of this. Let's slap the green on top of there, and he says that'll be the, you know, the hole. So that's how that 17 hole ended up. But um, that was terrible ground. I mean, really rough, and uh, and you know, and then he was thinking about the water because the river was there. But you know, I'm much. Pete always thought so far ahead, and uh, so we started digging. Uh, we did wells up there that he was pumping water out, and to see how much brackish water versus fresh water. And we would go around. He probably had I don't know. He's got 200 wells up there, and he kept going. He kept going. Jesus! Every time we go out there, he says we get 150 gallon a minute or something. You know couldn't figure out why all these wells were getting the same water out every single time. So we realized that they were moving the pump 
from one well to the other, and the pump could only pump 150 gallons a minute. So that was it. So that's how. So that's how we kept having the same, you know. But uh, you know, and uh, it was amazing how much you know water. And then when Paspalum, obviously, it's, we have to start with fresh water. But after the the grass grow, you could use, you know, brackish water. So Pete always thought, you know, okay, the river's right there. We have tons of water, but you know. Punta Cana is going to develop and it's up the river. They're going to take water from there and eventually maybe we won't have as much water. So that's how he wanted it to start using, you know, brackish water and things like that. So, but yeah, he, um, number 10, he was pointing. I was with him and he fell backward. He went down about 80 feet down over, you know, over <laughs> down the river. Anyway, he's right sliding down. He's hitting all the trees. We picked him out of there. He's bloody like hell. And he calls Alice, his wife, and he said, Alice, I won't be home for a couple of days. I've got a little more to do because he knew that she was going to absolutely, that the fall would be not even 12% of what she was going to do when he got home. She would have been so mad. So, but he was, he cut everywhere and, and he hurt his back a little bit, but he finally got home two days later and she just about killed him. She was so mad. But uh, yeah, it was, it was pretty scary to see him like tipped over, you know, just right over the corner of that tee and... Uh, but, you know, he, he did, again, he did all these things that, you know, you couldn't see anything originally, you know. It, it was all, if you look on the on the left side of that, you know, there's those trees and, the, you know, kind of bushes and things. And it, but he just, you know, the imagination was mind-boggling. So that was, uh, the front nine was much easier because it wasn't as bad, you know, type of thing. But still, you know, we went from one side to the other and Pete always wanted to have the best view all the time, you know. Any time that we built, um, uh, like Laramana Country Club, for example, the private club, we originally had clear view all the way on every single hole. He did not want to be somebody looking down the fairway at a green and see a home in the back. He never wanted that. Well, eventually trees grew and, you know, obviously we did some more, we built some houses, but uh, that was the thing. He always wanted a, a clear view. Like on the teeth on seven, there were homes there originally we built. He hated those things because he never wanted to see anything but didn't want to take any away from the view of the of the golf course. Obviously, there's a lot of really good golf in the Dominican Republic. Um, what is it about the country that is has made it such a great golf destination? Well, obviously, the weather is fantastic. The people are great. I mean, we have you know Dominicans are wonderful people. I mean, I've you know like for 38 years, I've had you know I don't know hundreds and hundreds of employees, um, and they've been you know fantastic. Um, you know, obviously the weather and then the, after Pete did this, you know, that's when all of a sudden the golf course architects start realizing. I mean, everything in this country basically has been built, you know, Pete built golf courses, but what he did is that he created jobs, you know, he created jobs, he created, you know, a hotel where we brought people and the tourists, if it wasn't from him, the, the you know, tourism in this country wouldn't be what it is today. Certainly. So then, you know, then the next thing you know, you know, they decide they brought, you know, Nicholas, Mr. Nicholas, and he did, you know, Punta Espada, and then Fazio did Corrales, and then uh, Jones did the one at Playa Grande, which I've never been up there, but it's supposed to be really fantastic. So, um, and again, it's ocean because it's on the water. You know, I mean, the, you know, Espada is on the water. They got beautiful water there and the, with the, the sand, so the, the water is very kind of different color than it is here. I work here, so I'm going to say it's not as good as Teeth of the Dog, <laughs> but, uh, but it's, it's beautiful, just a beautiful golf course. Corrales, also very, you know, beautiful, very different, wide fairways, you know, uh, 200 acres of, uh, 
Mode Pass Palum were maintained. So, but that's what happened is was they saw uh, Casa de Campo that took, you know, 50 years to build, but then all of a sudden uh, in Punta Espada, you know, they thought they could do in Punta, you know, they, uh, Cap Cana, they thought they could do, reproduce that in two or three years. Well, when all the economy is great, right? They're building, they're building, they're building. All of a sudden, uh, the economy went south, and that's when things change a little bit. You know, here, we were very lucky to have a company that has a sugar mill, and they've been very supportive to us. You know, without them, it's, you know, the, the bad years, they're there to support us. They support us 100%. They, uh, you know, they, they invest money. You know, the money that they invest in this property compared to what they make is ridiculous. But they're very proud of this. They're very, you know, they want this to be the place. Yeah, I mean, one thing that I didn't realize uh, coming in was just how absolutely enormous Casa de Campo is. Can you tell a little bit about the um, the history of the resort in terms of the, the business side of things and, and, and why it's it's such a vast pe- uh, piece of ground? Well, you know, it was 7,000 acres. That's what it is right now. And when Pete, believe it or not, when Pete was building the golf course, uh, the people at the time, uh, Golf and Western, that were the uh, you know the owner of, of this property, they went to Pete and they said, "You yeah, we got seven thousand acres here, and you're building the fifty on somebody else's land." So he was the back tee was on somebody else's land, and they ended up buying the land. And but um, you know when they first built the golf course, uh, they built a golf course, and then in 1974, the World Amateur was in the, somewhere again. Now I can't remember, but they had some you know. Uh, political unrest and stuff so Pete convinced them to come here so that's where it started basically where Casa de Campo became and they did the uh, uh, they had this story on uh, Sports Illustrated and uh, so that's how it got and the people originally when they stayed here they would get a little train they would go to Central Romana which is across the bridge and the river there was a little hotel there they would stay there and, and go back and forth and then they built uh, the villas on the left side of number one that those were the original villa and then decide to build a few you know a few rooms and then they start bringing people and then you know eventually it got bigger and it got more popular and then when I got here you know I did an amazing job and all these people started. <laughs> but um, so you know that that's how basically how it, it develops and then you know we got more homes I mean now we have over 2,000 homes at Casa de Campo and um, and it and also it became a very uh, a place where the Dominicans uh, were very proud. That, you know, the wealthier Dominican, he was like to have a home at Casa de Campo is special. So over sixty percent of the home at Casa de Campo are owned by by Dominicans. So uh, which is a good thing because you know whenever we are in a position, whatever with the government, whatever, you know these people have a voice and they're obviously wealthy and they're also very influential and uh, very good people and. Uh, so that's been very helpful. So, you know, every year now we're going to build, uh, maybe I should, I'm not sure if we everybody knows that, but we're going to build more rooms now uh, coming on and a new spa. And, uh, you know, every year we, we, they do things to improve. Now I'm looking forward to do a better clubhouse for the teeth of the dog. Or, and, but, you know, a lot of people with Lago Grill, they hate to see this go because it's rustic and it's something they're used to. Yeah. So, you know, there's a thing being modern. We don't want to be Miami necessarily or, you know, we, we still want to be, you know. Yeah, it does are. have we, that, that nice, yeah, that down-home feel. Exactly, yeah. exactly. So that's how it became. You know, we got more people and they got more rooms and then people build homes and then, you know, it just kind of go gradually. But it's over 40, 45, 50 years. It's not like it was done overnight. 
What's been the most satisfying aspect of your career at Casa de Campo? What are you What are you most proud of in your four decades? Well, I, I I think part of it is that we developed, you know, uh, golf in the Dominican Republic. You know, I feel a little bit, you know, I have a little feel that I'm a little responsible for all this stuff because we start doing tournaments here and, uh, you know, Dominicans got more involved and we got kids. My daughter was, you know, was born here and she was pretty good, you know, I wanted her to play golf and she ended up, you know, playing a couple U.S. Junior, U.S. Open and 201. So we got kids to play golf and then now, I mean, if you look, we have a kid now that just uh, finished like sixth or seventh on the uh, Latin American PGA. He's just played in three of the amateur here, you know, the Latin America. So we develop and, you know, when they could see what we were doing over here, you know, they start copying, you know, being copied, I guess, is the best compliment, right? Sure. So that's, they copy the ideas of the tournaments and the pro-ams and so, um, and I'm proud that I lasted 40 years. There's not a, you know, in that position, there's not that many people last. You know? I was out the door a couple of times and Pete brought me back in. My big mouth got me in trouble a few times. But uh, um, yeah, to, to you know, the, in a, last year they elected me in the Caribbean Golf Hall of Fame and it was, it was very... Uh, Congratulations. It was very emotional type of thing. You know, it was, uh, it, you know, it's... It was recognized that I, I did do something, but uh, yeah, seeing what Casa de Campo has become, then uh, you know, the, 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 how nice you know the people I work for and the, the the people that know me over the years. I mean, that's very satisfying. You know, you just personal satisfaction. You know, you, you think you can live without any anybody telling you that you're good or that you did a good job, but once in a while, when they tell you that, it's, it's a lot of fun. You know, it's it's very satisfying. Well, Jill, on behalf of all the Golf Week Raiders, uh, I would like to thank you uh, and the entire staff at Casa de Campo. Uh, we've had a great couple of days of golf. Um, and yeah, thank you as well for taking the time to uh, to chat with me just now. And uh, if we have, we're joined by a few Raiders, if you guys have any questions, uh, the mic is open. Were there any holes that Alice, in your memory, had an influence on? Well, all the, the forward tees, you know, Alice came up with the idea that uh, she checked, you know, whatever, studied how far women would hit a drive. So she didn't want, you know, just think of it, when you play in the, you know, in the States or Canada, a lot of places, you know, they stick a couple red tees up there and women are hitting driver, three wood, wedge or seven iron. So their idea for her was to put tees where the women can hit a drive and then have similar shot for the next shot to the green. So for example, number five, you know, if you play from the, the say the regular tees, you'll hit a wedge or whatever, nine iron, and, and then, but if you go where the, the forward tees are and the women are playing from there, they basically hit the same thing. I went out and played a few holes with my wife today and I played a little further back, but I hit eight iron and she had a sand, but you know, the difference is if I would have moved up to the, you know, middle tees, I would hit a wedge and that's what she hit on the green. So. Alice had all that influence on where to tease the links, for example, you know, it's a people, ah, oh, it's a short golf course. Well, it's a, it might be short, but still. So that was her influence, you know, or she would say, Pete, this looks like hell. This makes absolutely no sense. And Pete would, you know, walk around and then the next day he would do what she said. She was brilliant, you know, she could see things. And uh, uh, tell you a quick, uh, number five, one day there was a, a, Pete used to play with this guy all the time and he always, 
they had a battle and we played together and he used to complain number five and he said number five is a joke that green is too small we're playing from 165 and he was complaining all the time alice didn't say one word one day she gets out of the cart takes a club goes to the back tee takes the thing hits the ball hits on the green boom right there on the green she walks away and the guy well, I guess that's it. I guess I can't complain about that whole thing. So, uh, so that was her influence. She was a great player, by the way. You know, she yes. won 80, 90 golf tournaments. It was really good. Did you have? Well, I was trying to. Have they ever considered doing an executive course so that when people come in, they can just do a quick nine? You know, we uh, we talked about that many years ago. I, there was a little area that I wanted to put. When you remember when the Cayman ball come out came out, excuse mm -hmm. me, with Nicholas. There was a little area there when you're on the way to the beach on the left side, there was some land there and I thought we maybe we could put three or four holes there, you know, and right. you could play this thing. The deal is, is that right now we have so many holes, you know, 90 holes of golf for only 265 rooms. And obviously there's villas over here, but not all the owners are here all the time. So the idea was that we have so many holes, you know, you could go play nine holes on the links or something. So uh, it's a Excuse me. It's a really good idea, and I think it would be great because you know at Pinehurst they have the cradle, cradle. that's cradle successful, also. and they got things yeah, that uh, you know all over sure. the place now. They're building even at Sand Hills. Actually, they were talking about uh, building three or four holes there. Crenshaw looked at it to build three or four holes. You know, for guys are getting older, they can't go play 54 holes a day, so they figure. But um, maybe eventually we'll do that. Yeah. You know, we'll do that uh, when we did the. Uh, the new range actually, the practice facility. We were thinking about putting some holes around it, and uh, but you know, then that got scratched. But I have to compliment you on one thing because, like, I'm, a, I'm the only woman here, but all of the um, women's tees were so well placed. We still had the same danger, not well, I shouldn't say same dangers, we, we still had danger, and it really made you feel like you're playing the same course as the male. So. That was Alice. That was the thing with Alice. You so know, congratulations. Like, yeah, she's uh, she was also you know super bright, and she uh, you know she chewed me up a few times. But uh, you know, a, a little story about that is when she passed away. Uh, about um, about three weeks after she was gone, I got a box, a federal FedEx box, and um, and I it was in front of the door, and and I have a place in Florida. We have a place in. I said to my wife, what did you order now? You know, I mean, it's like, I mean, get, get, get boxes. So I didn't order anything. I said, well, I know you ordered something, but that might not be yours because my name was on it. So I opened the box and uh, there was a note on there and say, I know you would enjoy this, Alice. And it was all old pictures of Casa de Campo and history stuff that I have a box and stuff. And it was, uh, yeah, it was pretty good. We were, we were very close. You know, it, it was one of those things that I, I was here and I grew up and I have a picture with my daughter with them, but we became really close. When Pete had cancer, you know, he, he wanted to talk to me and Alice would call, even at the end there, she would call me uh, probably a couple times, you know, every two or three weeks to see how things were and she loved to gossip about what was going on at Casa de Campo. <laughs> so, um, so we talked quite a bit and it was very sad, uh, you know, when she passed and then when Pete came here, obviously, for his, you know, spend the last days or last month of his life here you know I mean that was really tough because he was dementia was really bad you know and he, he didn't recognize me and uh, didn't, I don't I don't know we recognized really to be honest with you but we took him on you know on the teeth of the dog and when he was out there you could see a little smile and 
couple of years before I'd play nine holes with him and I remember sitting on the, we were on number seven on the, and I said to him, I said, you did, you did pretty good, didn't you? And he just gave me a little smile and then he could talk and we went back to the house and we sat there and he fell asleep and I said, he had played, shot 39, you know, from the forward team, but he shot 39. <laughs> so we sit there and, I, and I'm talking with Alice and he kind of wakes up and I said, you played pretty good today. He said, I said, no, excuse me. I said, you know, you're playing good. I said, did a good job. And he goes, now, when did we play? <laughs> Didn't remember, you know, but uh, yeah, they were both, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a huge, uh, the influence that Pete and Alice died did in golf. I mean, you look at Nicholas as a player, Tiger Woods, or, but what he has done in terms of creating, you know, a new way to look at golf courses or, you know, the, the, he's just, you know, they were both amazing. They were both amazing and good people, you know, they, they didn't, they were here and everybody loved him. I mean, you know, he, he just walk around. We'd come here with a hundred dollar, uh, roll a hundred dollar bills, you know, and, and uh, somebody came to him one day and says, Pete said, uh, Mr. Dye, he says, oh, my, my mom died, you know, and he said, oh, Pete said, eh, a hundred bucks. I said, Pete, it was three weeks ago the guy told you his mom died. He goes, well, that's all right, he says, you know. <laughs> so he would, every time he would come in, I said, this is the third time. I said, how many times can she pass away? But, you know, he took the cat. He always walked. He didn't take a, he never took a cart. He walked and, you know, so. Mm -hmm. Anyway, we could sit here all night. I have obviously a wonderful story and maybe our friend over here to my left, maybe one day will be my uh, ghostwriter. Then you could, you know, I got some, uh, got some great, uh, you know, people have asked that before and stuff, except that you got to pay to get the thing printed here. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Jill. Thank you for uh, all of your insight and good humor. Uh, great stories. You're, you're a terrific storyteller. And uh, thank you guys for, uh, for listening and, and for your questions. Us.